Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. What does it mean to have one of the nation's premier food shows shoot in Portland? And what should we make of the controversial winner? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source, for supporting the show. Despite our national reputation and several celebrity chefs here in town, Portland has never hosted a season of Bravo's Top Chef until now. Up next, our resident food and TV gurus, Michael Russell and Christy Turnquist, recap the Top Chef season, which wrapped up last week. They talked about the controversial winner, what the show may mean for the city, and what they enjoyed most about the season. My colleague Julie Evenson interviewed Michael and Christy. Here's their conversation. Oh, hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Julie Evenson. I'm a game for the Oregonian Oregon Live. Uh, I am here with Christy Turnquist, our TV reporter, and Michael Russell, our restaurant reporter. So uh, Top Chef Portland, kind of a big deal to have it here in the city, especially during this past year with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and, you know, the, the huge outsized impact that that has had on the Portland food scene and the restaurant industry with you know, shutdowns and limited capacity and things like that. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Just to get things started, let's talk about the controversy. Let's talk about some of the allegations that have come out about Gabe Arales. And this came out after the the finale. Is that correct? Well, well, this was, it has actually been reported before. You okay. Know? Um, so some people knew about it, but it seemed to really get traction the night that you know, the finale aired and Gabe Arales was named the winner. Um, that same night, Gregory Gorday, you know, obviously the Portland chef who was one of the top chef all-star guest judges and diners this season because he'd been on the show, you know, once before as an all-star and then once for the Boston season when he and Doug Adams were on. Um, he posted a series of uh, messages on Instagram talking about abuse in the restaurant industry, uh, specifically of women. Um, and then Padma Lakshmi went to Twitter and posted, you know, the situation with Gabe Arales should be investigated. Uh, she later added a second tweet that said, you know, during the time that they were doing the show in Portland, there was no indication of misbehavior. But what happened was, is that it had been reported that after they finished filming the show in October, Arales was back at his restaurant in Austin. And in December, he was fired for misconduct. It was very vague at the time. There was a statement issued from the co-owners that said he'd been fired for repeated violation of their policies and for behavior in conflict with their values. Um, and it just seemed stubbornly stuck to that for a while. Nobody really knew officially on the record why he had been fired. There was plenty of talk on Reddit and that sort of thing. And there was like sort of silence uh, from, you know, the officials at Bravo once this all came out. Uh, the next day, uh, Arales was quoted in the Austin American Statesman, where he said that when he came back to his restaurant after Top Chef Portland filmed, um, 
he said that he had had a consensual, in quotes, sexual relationship with employee in 2020, in the summer of 2020, which would have been before that aired, and that he, in November, when he returned to the restaurant, cut her hours based on performance. He, he said that this was, you know, bad decisions. The co-owner of the restaurant contradicted him and said that didn't seem like a good reason to cut this employee's hours and that he said that Arellis had been fired because of kind of a pattern of harassment of women. So that's what all blew up. Basically, the the night of uh, the finale and the following day, and it's kind of continued to roll since then. That's a great recap. And, you know, I think Padma... Uh, deserves credit for calling for an investigation. I do think it's interesting that the Austin American Statesman reported that Bravo was aware of these allegations. I mean, the whole world was aware of these allegations in December because that's when the initial report that he'd been fired from his old restaurant, which is called Comador, uh, came out. So, you know, it is interesting to me. I think the the place where Bravo can be criticized is that if they're going to do an investigation now, I think the question is raised like, well, you guys probably could have done that investigation in December, January, February, March, April on and on until now. Um, And if you had done that and found that what Gabe did was, you know, such a violation of your own, whatever morality clauses you might have in your contracts, uh, you could have made a decision before the season aired. Now, if it comes to be that Gabe's title is pulled, which would be sort of the extreme end of the repercussions, you know, you always hear they win $250,000. They win a feature in food and wine magazine, a trip to Aspen. Now, do you think Food & Wine Magazine wants to run a puff feature about Gabe Barales now that he's been accused of uh, sexually harassing uh, female staff at his restaurant? I don't know. Um, so I think that the, the <laughs> one place where I've thought about this a lot over the weekend since the finale aired, if you're going to do an investigation, you had the re- you, they did have the resource to do that before the finale aired. And now, if they do take that extreme measure, which I know some are calling for, even people who are close to Top Chef, what does that say about their decision-making process up until now? And the fact that they've been silent about this up until now, including not doing the usual things that a top chef winner gets like, uh, you know, tweeting out a congratulations or appearing on the Andy Cohen show, those kinds of things. I, I believe they're open to criticism there, even though Padma w- was possibly bound by clauses in her own contract about what she could reveal about, um, about Gabe winning. I understand that. Uh, so when was the right time to do this investigation, I think, is the big question here. You know, I mean, it's certainly not unheard of for reality shows to have uh, controversies or scandals, you know, surrounding them. And this is an interesting case study because, yeah, it, it you know, it, it certainly seems like these reports about Aralis were out there um, before they began filming the show. And apparently there there was a top, somebody associated with the show, I think spoke to the, uh, the Austin American statesman and said that they didn't really consider not airing the season because that would be unfair to the other contestants who were on. Um, so what do you do? I mean, they could have had, they could have had some sort of on-screen, you know, recognition, uh, some sort of introduction. I I don't know. Um, We know that Top Chef can pivot very quickly because if you follow the chefs on Instagram who are taking part in the season, you may have noticed that Eduardo Jordan, the Seattle chef, was there at the final dinner along with um, a bunch of Top Chef all-stars from around the country. Peter Cho, a chef from Portland, was there as well. But when you watched the actual episode, Eric, they had edited out Jordan completely. Now, clearly that's an easier thing to do than, you know, reshooting the entire finale. Right. Uh, but I mean, 
I, I'm not sure what they can do at this point, but there's a lot of criticism on social media uh, and also just among people involved in the show. And it feels like they may have to do something. Maybe the move is to put Don and Shota on to, uh, you know, top chef all-stars like uh, uh, our own Gregory Gorday or Naomi Pomeroy have been on. That makes a lot, or I guess Pomeroy was on Masters. Masters, yeah. But yes, you could take those two, you know, very, very talented chefs from this season, move them to top chef all-stars. Maybe they get another crack at the win. I think it would be fun. Bring those two chefs back to Portland for a one day cook off <laughs> at somewhere beautiful. Multnomah Falls comes to mind, or uh, you, know, you pick back on the coast. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and I think I would tune in for that. Shota versus Dawn. You get one more crack at it. Maybe Dawn can remember to put her, uh, you know, potatoes on the plate, exactly. and uh, Shota can do something a bit more refined for his main course. Uh, who, who's with me there? Would you guys watch that? You know, the thing the thing that is really sad about this and troubling about it is that up until this total bummer of of a finale, um, you know, and the winner having all these issues associated with him, this was really a terrific season. I mean, a lot of people were moved, I think, by how the chefs worked together, the spirit of conviviality, collegiality. I mean, obviously, these shows are edited to tell certain kinds of stories. Yes, this is true. Um, but, you know, this... This season had kind of a wonderful, um, diverse group of chefs who cooked from their background, from their culture, from things they remembered growing up in their households. Um, and the judges seemed to really appreciate that. You know, I mean, as, as has been said elsewhere, it wasn't like, we want you to cook like, you know, Escoffier or something. I mean, it was all about tell your story you know, and show us the cuisine that, that you make. Um, and the season really seemed to be about celebrating that. And so then to have what was really kind of a feel good season um, end in this way that is so troubling is it's really disappointing. You bring up a really good point because it, it wasn't just like cultural diversity, although Gabe Arales does identify as Latino. Don is black. Shota is Japanese American. They were all cooking from extremely diverse cuisines. And, you know, as you, as you pointed out, Top Chef 10 years ago, it might be that everybody who is who reached the elite level was cooking from a French background and that the judges, maybe that's what the judges were rewarding because they didn't know anything else. In the finale, you really did have Shota cooking straight Japanese food. I mean, his main, he, he did a, a sushi course. Uh, he did a, um, a, a Japanese curry, um, which uh, was very sort of comfort food driven that his, something his mom loved apparently. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dawn cooked Southern food that was also, I would say, probably pretty French influenced given all the butter that she used with her sauces. But <laughs> So French, Southern, Pan-African for her. Uh, and then Gabe cooked this very straight Mexican cuisine from the Yucatecan Peninsula with a little Oaxacan influence, a little, uh, I think his family has background in the Yucatan. And, you know, uh, the other element is these were three incredibly talented chefs. I'm not yeah. a top chef super fan the way, you know, uh, you are as our TV critic, but <laughs> man, I was real. that's one takeaway I had. I was really impressed with the, with the talent and skill of the three guys, three people who uh, ended up in the finale. Yeah. And I mean, even a lot of the people who went home earlier, I mean, we had our local chefs, Sarah Hellman and Gabriel Pascuzzi, who, you know, made good dishes during their time on the show. They didn't make it to the finale, but they certainly did, did some good food while, we were, while they were there. You know, and as they say, I mean, the show is there to kind of celebrate professional chefs kind of working at the top of their game. But I think as 
Gregory Gorday's Instagram post reflected part of the world of professional cooking is really um, tainted by misconduct in the kitchen. And the past year has really been a reckoning about this, uh, uh, specifically women being harassed both by their employers, their bosses, and by customers. That's something that's being talked about a lot. And you have had studies come out that say something like 70 plus percent of women who work in the service industry say they've been sexually harassed by either, again, customers or bosses. And that number is higher than almost any other field, maybe the highest in any field. Uh, So to have Top Chef kind of come in and be like, okay, we need to deal with our diversity issues this season, and then end up blowing it with having someone who's been accused of sexual harassment uh, there win win it all. That's really tough. I I should also point out, I don't know if I said this, but Eduardo Jordan, the guy who was edited out uh, of the final episode, was accused of sexual harassment by a number of women in a Seattle Times story about two weeks ago. So they were pretty nimble about editing that out for the final episode. So as we're talking about the, you know, the finale and maybe what they could do next, um, one thing we didn't address directly is, you know, if they choose to go in this direction where, you know, maybe we have a rematch between Don and Shoda, uh, they will officially strip Gabe of his title. Is that That's on the pure table? speculation? I mean, we, don't know. I, we have no idea what they're going to do. They've been pretty silent so far other than, I mean, Padma's out there all on her own uh, with her tweets about it. Uh, you know, as Christy said, saying that uh, they weren't aware exactly. I mean, they were, they had some awareness because there was an article. Uh, they didn't know all the details. And I think Gabe was, uh, what I've heard from sources is that he was telling people that um, he just had some marital infidelities, but they could have gone further than that. You know, they just, if they took him at his word, and I will also point out to date, the Austin American Statesman article that came out the day after the finale the quoted Gabe, that is still, uh, that is still Gabe sort of controlling the narrative. You know, he called it a consensual relationship. Uh, he said his, the owner of the restaurant, Philip Spear, you know, disagreed with him. That, that is still all coming from Gabe's voice. So, you know, at some point there could be more reporting from the point of view of, of the, the woman who he, um, you know, cut whose hours he admitted he cut and it could paint a completely different picture. And at some point Bravo's hands might be tied here. Um, I just, again, cannot imagine Food and Wine wanting to do a big feature on this guy. I cannot imagine uh, them wanting to invite this guy to the Aspen Food and Wine Festival, given the climate we're in right now. What will the other chefs, what will the female chefs especially, but everyone really at that festival, will they want to be side by side with them handing out oysters or or what? I don't know. I And then San Pellegrino has their own decision to make about their big quarter of a million dollar prize. Um, yeah. I'm sure there are conversations happening with lawyers right now. But let's talk about let's talk about other parts of the show, uh, even though this has certainly tainted the finale. It's important, and it sounds like it's unprecedented, at least in the history of this show. Although, as we were talking about in our prep for this discussion, reality shows are not strangers to scandals. This is true, and Top Chef is neither type of scandals. Yeah, so. I mean, there was yeah. an earlier Top Chef. Uh, uh, I think winner. I think Paul, Paul, Paul Key. Key. Yeah. Yeah. Who was involved in a lot of issues, but we don't have to get into that because that's. No, it is funny yeah. that he was also, he, I mean, this is just a uh, coincidence, but he was also from uh, Texas and he worked alongside Philip Spear, who was the owner of Commodore where Gabe mm-hmm. Raleigh's worked. I mean, that's yeah, more of a coincidence more. than anything. And Philip yeah. Spear, the owner of Commodore, uh, he now has sort of made an effort to improve the culture at his restaurants and yeah. has started running clubs and, you know, sobriety clubs. And I, I, I think he took yeah. it pretty seriously in firing him in December um, when you knew he probably went pretty far on Top Chef. 
So he probably yeah. deserves some credit there. Yeah, it'll be interesting Maybe. to see what Bravo tries to do as damage control if they do anything. I mean, I think saying nothing is not helping, <laughs> you know, because that just leaves a lot of empty space for people to then, you know, enter into the conversation and and speculate. So it's a shame because you know it was it was unusual in that you know when the show filmed in Portland, the pandemic was still in full cry, um, you know, and people had been wanting the show to feel important for a long time. And according to people associated with the show that I spoke to, they, Portland had been on the list, uh, had been a place they'd been considering coming to for a while. Um, and, you know, kind of the, it fell into place for this. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending, I mean, it was, it was nice to see a vision of Portland that was something other than the very dark, serious one that, that had been portrayed in, in other aspects of coverage of Portland over the year. You know, there was a lot of coverage of, you know, protests about, you know, racial injustice and uh, the pandemic shutdowns and then the wildfires, you know, it was such a tough year for Portland. So having the show film here during the pandemic was, you know, kind of nice, but it was, it was kind of too bad for the chefs because they couldn't really get out and get to the restaurants in the way that an ordinary season of Top Chef does. Ordinarily, they can get out, you know, they can't, you know, I mean, obviously, Oregon is beautiful and you can go outdoors and they certainly did. But in previous seasons, they've been able to go to restaurants, they've been able to, you know, really be part of the city's dining culture in a way that I think was obviously not really possible this time. So I don't really know how, you know, Top Chef Seattle or Top Chef Boston or whatever impacted the restaurants that were visited on the show. My experience covering the restaurant scene uh, generally is that the chefs who appear, especially if they go far, that means a huge amount for them. Uh, if you're a finalist on that show um, and, you know, you had uh, Gregory Gourdet, who you've mentioned, and Doug Adams both went really far in their season of Top Chef. Yeah, Those two went on to sort of I think I phrased it recently that they were able to write their own ticket. So Gregory is going to open his own wood fired Haitian restaurant where he is focused on hiring uh, BIPOC uh, women staff members and sort of creating a, a, a better culture in his words. That is probably opening in 2022. He's, he's taking his time. He wants to do a nationwide search for staff members. So he's, 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 he's going slow. Obviously the pandemic impacted that opening date. Doug Adams, yeah. meanwhile, was able to open a restaurant that was inspired by his upbringing in Texas and Montana and moving to Oregon called Bullard downtown. And then he recently opened, um, or he opened at the beginning of the pandemic, he opened a spinoff fried chicken restaurant called Holler uh, in the Selwood Moreland area. And that they just held their, their grand opening after being open for months and months, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but that's what probably if you're, a, if you're a young cook with aspirations to become a chef, you know, opening a signature project based on your background and heritage, that's like the dream right now. And those two chefs, presumably in large part um, or in some part because of their appearance on Top Chef. I mean, Gregory was already a pretty well-established figure in Portland, but Doug was um, uh, running restaurants for Vitaly Paley before Top Chef. So, uh, wow. you know, those chefs really, uh, I think it meant a lot for their career. And, you know, will it matter for a Gabriel Pescuzzi who already has multiple restaurants in Portland with Stacked Sandwich Shop and Mama Bird, his chicken place, and a, and a healthy bowl concept called Feel Good that's on hiatus? Like, I don't know what that means for for Gabe, um, who, who you know, kind of made it about halfway through the show. And then Sarah, who made it a bit further, Sarah Howman, she's the chef at a, a vineyard in Oregon wine country called Soder. And she has dreams of opening a boutique fish cannery, which kind of is inspired by all the little fishes she was presenting on the show. Uh, and, you know, 
that's pr- I assume she could probably have opened a fish cannery without being on Top Chef, but this does make it easier for her. Uh, <laughs> I see that impact on the individual chefs more than uh, probably matters more than the impact on a whole scene. And I can't really imagine someone watching this show in uh, you know Wisconsin or or you know Arizona and being like. Yeah, I need to go sh- check out Portland restaurants generally now. And this is like, you know, food tourism in Oregon, uh, food and wine tourism is a multi-billion dollar business. And could it impact the bottom line? Possibly. But what did they do really on this show where you were like, wow, I have to try that? Like, I'm thinking like Gabe Brucker cooked a sort of extravagant pigeon dish that they had to deconstruct in a, you know, blind in a dark room. I mean, that doesn't really... <laughs> Make me want to eat at La Pigeon, per se, even though it is a great restaurant. Yeah, but that dish didn't even sound good. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, especially after they had all their grubby paws in the food. I definitely don't want to eat it then. And that grubbish sauce with boiled eggs or something? (laughs) They went to uh, several food carts for the Pan-African episode. That's probably where they went out more than any other episode. But like two of those restaurants might not even – you know, are closed right now. One of them is a catering company and might not reopen – in a yeah. place you could visit. So the place where I, as a, if I were, I'm transporting myself, I, I'm living in Maine. Oh, do I want to go to the other Portland? It's the scenic beauty that Christy mentioned. It's like yeah. the shots of Mount hood when they went to the, uh, the fruit loop. It's uh, the drives out to the gorge. It's, you know, those things I could really imagine being like, wow, I just have to go out in that beauty because it was, you know, the outdoor shots were totally stunning. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I think it might impact our outdoors you know, people coming for the outdoors more than people coming for our food. Let's take a break, then come back and hear more with Michael Russell and Christy Turnquist. Was that a different approach then because of COVID? So I, I admittedly have not paid a lot of attention to Top Chef until it had a Portland connection. Um, so I don't have anything to compare it to, to the, to the past seasons. So is that, you different? know, well, it varies somewhat because I'm trying to think of like the Kentucky season. I don't know. They, you know, go out and go to a whiskey barrel place or something. I don't know. It was a few years since that was on. I have a fake memory. But I mean, it would be sort of a combination of some things that would be outdoors, but a lot of, you know, sort of restaurants. And in this case, obviously, um, you know, I mean, I spoke to Gail Simmons kind of about Top Chef Amateur. She was also one of the judges on Top Chef Portland. And she's hosting this spinoff that filmed here in Portland right after Top Chef Portland because they had the kitchen set up at the Portland Expo Center. Um, But she was saying that obviously they had to keep changing their plans because of protests and wildfires and things that were happening downtown. Um, and she was pointing to the fact that there there were lots of nice outdoor locations that offered them some flexibility while filming during the pandemic um, that were beautiful and that Oregon, you know, obviously really does lend itself to that. So, you know, going out to the gorge, I mean, gosh, that was beautiful. And that whole that whole episode with members of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation, I mean, that was fascinating. Um, and then going to the coast was gorgeous. I mean, I love the coast anyway, and the Dungeness crab. Oh my God. Oh, love it. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, some of that I think was uh, necessary because of the pandemic. And, and it fortunately, you know, Oregon lends itself to that. Even the stuff in Portland filmed kind of outdoors, like the tournament of tofu that they filmed at the Japanese garden. That certainly made me want to go back to the Japanese garden. You know, I mean, it's lovely. Uh, it's been a while since I've been there. <laughs> but, you know, it, it made it look really beautiful with the views of the city and everything. Um, you know, they weren't showing parts of the city that have had a, a harder time during the past year, you know, because that's, again, TV and 
they're sort right. of going for what looks pretty. But do, do you think if you didn't know what we know about what was going on with the quarantine uh, uh, for these chefs, do you think if you were just watching the show like three years from now and forgot about that, do you think you would, how aware do you think you would be that these chefs were really like locked in their hotel downtown and, and couldn't go out and there was protests and wildfire smoke and this and that and that. Yeah. I mean, that certainly wasn't reflected in the show. I mean, I think when, you know, the main thing is usually the finale is filmed elsewhere, like in Italy or in Mexico or in China, um, you know, and there's usually been a, a break, you know, so that the chefs are able to come back and film, you know, create the meal of their lives. Whereas in this case, don't knock were, Tillamook. Don't knock they, Tillamook. Well, the finale was at Willamette Valley Vineyards, which no, no problem. I mean, yay, Willamette Valley Vineyards, but it wasn't Italy. You know. Anyway, um, you know, and Cannon Beach. Cannon Beach looked real pretty for the next to the last finale. It's, it's a good thing you can't smell the TV for that one Tillamook episode. You know, <laughs> everyone knows the. Uh, yeah, cows rule the air there, don't they? Yeah, there, there was that one little quote that I think it was Shota who said, "Yes, you can. I don't know, smell the umami, umami. or something yeah. in there. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> That's not what most of us associate with with Tillamook. Um, I don't. I don't know what the impact for for Portland would have been had this season happened in during normal times. But I do think that there would have been more opportunities to visit some of our best restaurants or yeah. incorporate chefs in a way that felt more natural than, you know, Oh, here's Vitaly Paley. He's going to judge this quick fire. I mean, yeah. you know more about top chef than I do. So maybe that's just how it is, but um, I would have loved to see them get out a bit more. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm always a bit skeptical about top chefs impact on a city. Anyway, I, I remember years ago, I've probably told you the story before, Christy, but we went down to San Diego and the hot new restaurant opening that year was this place from Brian Malarkey who had won Top Chef. And we went, it was like a- Oh, he, did, he, did, he didn't win. Oh, he was a, he was a <laughs> yeah. uh, finalist or what was it? And he's actually from Oregon, oddly enough. He's oh, from God. Central okay. Oregon. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Uh, if you come <laughs> he did, back, don't hate he, me. He did show up on All Stars, but yeah, he, he competed, but I, he didn't win. I well, he think. was able to open this like giant 240 check. seat Southern restaurant and like my fried green tomatoes, the, the fry was just dripping off of it and it wasn't crunchy at all. And I thought- Oh man, you know, if your if your city's restaurant scene is relying on exposure from Top Chef, you could be in a lot of trouble. I think it's better to have a restaurant scene mature enough. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's better to have a Top Chef uh, to have a restaurant scene that's mature enough where Top Chef can kind of come and go, and it doesn't really matter other than for you know the Gabe and Sarahs of the world who are on it and do you know reasonably well. Um, well, I also think that over the years, um, the people who are on the show have changed because, you know, as they said, this year, there were no sous chefs or anything. They were all executive chefs. And again, people were available because of the pandemic. A lot of them had had to close their restaurants or leave their restaurants. Um, so I think that the quality of talent this year was terrific. And I think the quality of talent has been gradually improving every year, um, you know, as they've, you know, as they've done the show, because if you, if you go back to the earlier seasons, there were some people in there who, yeah, <laughs> they didn't seem that great. Um, so I, I, I think the, the but, level but of expertise has has increased. And that being said, two of the three finalists were James Beard Award nominees, and you know there were other James Beard norm nominees who didn't make it to the finale. But those three chefs in particular, you could kind of tell early on were the cream of the crop just in terms of a talent level, and yeah. the meals they presented were pretty stunning. I mean, I I, I could really see. Uh, uh, you know, all the problems about Gabe aside, I could see those four dishes he presented in the finale at a pretty high end part of a larger tasting menu at a really high end restaurant. His sauce making is beautiful. He makes traditional 
uh, uh, moles, you know, Mexican sauces. The one he made as part of his main was a, uh, a black mole, a mole negro. And he put tw- more than 20 ingredients into it, which is pretty typical. He put in like charred uh, chilies and charred tortillas that, you know, were almost like smoking up the kitchen he was working in. He's using pretty classic techniques there. Yeah. Uh, he had the inventiveness to use um, tepache, which is a fermented pineapple drink as part of a seafood crudo. I think it was raw scallop there. Um, the judges were blown away. I don't really think, um, you know, Don's food, I think, was strong enough when it was on to be as good as his, as Gabe's. But her downfall again and again and again throughout the season, for those of you time who watched, management. was time <laughs> management and putting things on the plate. But also just that first course she put out had like eight things on it. And this comes after Nina Compton, the great New Orleans chef took her aside in this family dinner with all the top chef all-stars and said, Hey Don, uh, could you not put so much stuff on the plate this time? Like you're, you know, that's like, if, if you find you're running out of time, maybe do three things instead of five. Um, she did 17 things and once again, didn't put something on the plate. And I, I just think if you're like, okay, again, taking aside the accusations against Gabe, if you're a top chef judge and you have two equal chefs or almost equal and one of them, it puts out 12 plates and two of them are missing an essential ingredient uh, ingredient again and again and again. You, you just, there's just, you can't win with that. You know, I mean, part, well, of, part also, of winning Top Chef is not making those mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a TV show, you know, and I mean, much as I like Top Chef, you know, it is a TV show. It's not a PBS documentary, you know, I mean, and so, yes, they do have those horrible product placements. Talente. <laughs> yeah. No offense to Talente, but oh my God. <laughs> Come up with a quick fire based on Talente. Um, you know, kind of silly. Um, you know, so there are these constraints because it's on a commercial cable network, um, you know, and they have the, the timed element and they have these challenges. Some are great. Some are kind of goofy. Um, that's always just been the way. Um, and so you kind of have to learn how to work within that framework. And I think, you know, I think Gabe was really good at that. I mean, I think he really knew what he could do and what he wanted to do and the time that he had. Um, as you say, those other issues aside, I mean, he, he really seemed to understand what he had gotten into. And I think Dawn kind of got in her own head a little bit. But I still think she was number two for me if I were, you know, just based on what we saw. And Shota, you know, his problem, which they discussed on the show, was he put out dishes that were too comfort food focused. He put out a dish of this Japanese curry and rice that was, you know, it looked totally delicious. It was a beef tongue curry. So that was a little bit of a bonus. Uh, and his process for making it sounded pretty, you know, awesome and laborious. He left it cooking on low heat overnight. Yeah. Um, all that aside, he presented it like something you'd find at a lunch counter and he undercooked his rice. So, I mean, at that point, yeah. the, the goal of the finale is, to present a, a higher end meal, present a meal that could be, you know, a, a, a tasting menu that you might spend 85, 95 or over a hundred dollars for. So, yeah, you know, that's, that's tough. So I would, I would yeah. say, but I still would like to see Shota and Don go, go head to head. That's my dream. I'd love it. I think that's a great idea. I think from, from your lips to Bravo's ears, I think. Yeah. yeah. You guys listening. <laughs> <laughs> so as we start to wrap up, you know, talked a little bit about, you know, the controversies and, you know, kind of writ large, what does this mean for Portland or any city that hosts a Top Chef? Um, I'm going to bring it back down a little bit and ask you both, was there 
a moment or a dish or a particular chef, something in this season that was kind of your favorite? Like if you have to go back and think about the season, like what was that one moment or thing or person that you just really enjoyed the most? Well, I already said Dungeness crab. I mean, when, when they were at the coast and they were cooking first with clams and then with Dungeness crab, I was blissed out because I, I really like clams. I adore Dungeness crab. If only it wasn't so expensive. Um, you know, I mean, I grew up in Portland and we, you know, used to sit around and just crack crabs over newspaper and just eat it and, you know, dip it in melted butter. So just seeing the creativity they were bringing to these dishes, they had to do one cold and one hot dish of Dungeness crab. And they were paying tribute to James Beard, Oregon native, Portland native. Um, that was one of his favorite ingredients. So it just, it had this wonderful Oregon feel to it. Plus it was crap. So I was happy. I'll get to my favorite point in a moment, but as someone who didn't really watch Top Chef, the crab episode brought up something that would surprise me, which was how freaking hard these challenges are. I mean, (laughs) there were times where it's like, okay, I'm going to bake fresh bread and do this and do that. And we have 25 minutes and then they go (laughs) off and do it in the quick fire. And then that crab challenge you know, they went Cracking out uh, crab. crabbing oh and then they, they had two hours or something to, to, and they had to process the crab. It takes forever oh to crack crab. Just, yeah, just, just <laughs> steaming, cracking the crab, just picking it. And Dawn, to her credit, was smart there to serve the crab smart. in the shell. That was uh, smart. That saved she, her a lot of time. Yeah, Shota obviously was extremely efficient with his crab cracking. But Gabe got in big <laughs> trouble in that episode by because uh, he burned one of his tortillas or, or I guess like one of the t- – Linen towels melted on it or something. I, don't on know how, I didn't know linen could melt. <laughs> Maybe it was uh, not real linen, I guess. Oh, favorite <laughs> moment, favorite moment. So um, I have a couple. Uh, if you don't, if you'll humor me, I, I thought the moment where um, uh, Jamie uh, Jamie Tran sort of tried to give up her spot uh, in the episode that was filmed out at the uh, in Tualatin Valley. Uh, where Maria Mazon was kicked off and Jamie Tran said, no, take me. She, it was kind of strange because she was like, take me, but no, I'm not really going to leave. And, I don't want to go. <laughs> but the, the friendship between them two and, and sort of kind of the suggestion of that sacrifice was, I mean, it was like a dang emotional moment, uh, even though, yeah, this is a reality show. This was like, that was good TV. Um, on a personal level, Christy and I were able to profile the two Portland chefs and, that for me, that meant I got to go out to Soder Vineyards and sit in their uh, little show garden up by the tasting room. And man, that is, first of all, that's one of the most beautiful places I've been to in Oregon. Uh, you know, it's got almost 360 views and of uh, the surrounding Carlton wine country and, uh, and chat with Sarah, who seems pretty down to earth to me. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a cool hang. Uh, and that story was pretty fun. So you can, you could Google those, our two profiles. Um, so on a personal level, I wasn't watching the show, but uh, profiling Sarah was, was my favorite moment of the season. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to some of Michael and Christie's stories in the episode notes. We'll be back Monday with a regular episode. Until next time.